This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Ich würde dir ja ein Spicy Nugget abgeben, aber... Aber? Heiße Ware teilt man nicht. Ist klar. Hol auch du dir nur für dich die Spicy Chicken McNuggets. My Nuggets, my rules. Nur für kurze Zeit und solange der Vorrat reicht in teilnehmenden Restaurants bei McDonalds. Hello, I'm Carolyn Quinn and welcome to the Business Blueprint from the UK's Department for Business and Trade, the bite-sized podcast designed to help you scale and strengthen your organisation. In this episode, we're joined by Luke Seaman, the Head of Public Affairs for Klarna, the Swedish fintech company which has successfully scaled its business through UK investment. So Luke, why did Klarna choose the UK as a destination to scale the business? It's our view that you can't have any thriving sector without the support of policymakers, decision makers, regulators. And I think with the tech sector, you've absolutely got that. The digital infrastructure in the UK has meant that you've got a, a UK consumer that is actually thirsty for new products, for innovation and really embraces those new products and services. Thanks very much, Luke. Join us in part two at the end of your podcast. And to find out more, search Invest in Great. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Okay, I'm not going to explain now, but just hear me out. Listen to this. Strap it. This is BBC Radio 4. I remember hearing this and I was like, hold on for dear life. UK Station of the Year. I'm coming out. We're going to interrupt you because Chris Mason has news. The Prime Minister has agreed to stand down. A year to remember. Just happened. With powerful documentaries. They say at the heart of every conspiracy theory, there's a kernel of truth. Hard hitting interviews. How did you survive, Nazanin? I think it was my faith. And innovative entertainment. Screaming like pushing hard and then it. This is add to playlist on BBC Radio. Okay, yeah. okay, are you listening? Winner of UK Station of the Year. My castaway this week is the singer. Hear it on BBC Sounds. This is BBC Radio 4. At Woman's Hour and to you at home. When I when I saw him there, I just said, you've got a hell of a job, the best of luck. And what I really wanted to say... Don't tempt me. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programme. Hello. Inside each cell of every complex organism, there are structures known as mitochondria. The scientists who first observed them in the 19th century thought they were bacteria who'd somehow invaded the cells they were studying. We now understand mitochondria are the power packs of cells. They take components from the food we eat and convert them into energy. Mitochondria are essential for complex life. But as the components that run our metabolisms, they can also be responsible for a range of diseases, and they probably play roles in ageing. The DNA in mitochondria is only passed down the maternal line. This means it can be used to trace population movements deep into human history, even back to an ancestor we all share, mitochondrial Eve. With me to discuss mitochondria are Florence Camus, NERC Independent Research Fellow at University College London, 
Mike Murphy, Professor of Mitochondrial Redox Biology at the University of Cambridge, and Nick Lane, Professor of Evolutionary Biochemistry at University College London. Nick Lane, mitochondria are found in all complex cells. What do we mean by a complex cell? They're the cells that uh, we are made of and that plants are made of uh, and, and, and fungi and algae and things like amoeba. Uh, so they're, they're, they're compared to bacteria, which are incredibly tiny. Um, you could get, I don't know how many on a pinhead. And there's all kinds of things inside. We have a nucleus where we pack our DNA. We have all kinds of membrane systems, uh, all kinds of moving parts. And, and we have these mitochondria, the power packs of cells, which ironically were bacteria once. Those early pioneers were right. They were bacteria. When was once? Uh, about 2 billion years ago. So 2,000 million years ago. Uh, and and uh, that's about in the middle age, if you like, of our planet. So uh, uh, life started around about 4 billion years ago, around 2 billion years ago, these complex cells appeared for the first time quite abruptly. There's, we still argue uh, between ourselves as scientists about quite how they arose. What, what do you mean by eukaryotic cells? Well, eukaryotic cells literally means uh, true kernel or true nucleus, uh, and the nucleus is where we pack our DNA. And all complex. When I say complex cells, I really am talking about eukaryotic cells. So these are the cells that have mitochondria uh, and a nucleus, and so on. When things are so numerous and so small, how do you get near them to describe them? Well, we can see them under microscopes, uh, but it is very difficult to imagine. It's very difficult for scientists to imagine as well. Uh, and we've been able to see them since uh, late Victorian times, and they look and behave like bacteria. And for a long time, people were trying to culture them as if they were bacteria, and it never worked. Uh, and it doesn't work because it turns out that although they do have genes of their own, uh, most of them went to the nucleus instead. And so we have this kind of split personality of a cell that has got two genomes. There is no such thing as the human genome. We all have two genomes. We have the mitochondrial genes and the nuclear genes. Can we go through a bit more about what, what role they play in the cells, mitochondria? So they're often called power packs. You could think of them as little batteries. Um, they are electrically charged. It doesn't sound like much of a charge. It's around about 150 or 200 millivolts. But if you were to shrink yourself down to the size of a molecule and stand next to that membrane, the electrical field that you would experience is about 30 million volts per meter, which is like a bolt of lightning. And now, if you kind of iron out all of the membranes in the mitochondria in our own bodies, there would be about four football pitches of, of these membranes with a charge like a bolt of lightning across all of this surface area. And that is what keeps us alive. And this is happening to all, all four of us now as you speak. Absolutely, and everybody in the world, yes. And all, all, all complex life. <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? Can I turn to you, Mike Murphy, what are ATP molecules and what function do they have? When we're thinking about mitochondria, what we're thinking about is how those organelles, those parts of the cell, make energy available to the rest of the cell to do the work. What we have is a currency of energy called ATP. It's a small molecule with a bunch of phosphates attached to it. And this is kind of a universal energy currency. So energy comes in the form of food, or it can come in the form of light to photosynthetic organisms, or other forms of uh, minerals that can be used for some bacteria that can rely on minerals in the environment. In all cases, we've got to convert that energy into a form that can be used to do the basic work of the cell. That could be to make new cells, 
for a muscle cell to contract, for a neuron to transmit ions and transmit neuronal signals. In those situations, what we do is convert all the food energy or whatever other sort of energy into this universal currency called ATP. And so we build up a large amount of ATP inside the cell. So formally, the ATP concentration is that store of energy. And if you were at equilibrium, if your ATP went down to zero, then you would be dead. So continually, life is holding that away from equilibrium, storing the energy in the ATP concentration, more formally in the ratio of ATP to its products. But that's kind of the way we store the energy that does everything in our bodies. I'm in the position of finding it astonishing, and and you you seem to take it for granted that this is what goes on. It is astonishing, and if I sit back in the garden at the end of the day and have a think about what I've been working on, it is completely mind-boggling. Of course, on the day-to-day basis when you're doing the work and you're in there, sometimes you lose track of that and it just becomes a job. But it's important to distance ourselves and bear in mind how astonishing it is that we have these bacteria inside our cells doing these processes, providing the ATP, and they're working away inside us all the time. Do you have any figures to tell the listeners about what what scale this is on? It's huge. If we think about the amount of oxygen that we breathe in, well, that oxygen is being used to burn the food we consume. So we consume food as sugars or fat. That gets broken down and goes to our mitochondria. Then about 95% of the oxygen we breathe is used by the mitochondria to burn up that food and that will produce a whole way of converting that energy into ATP and probably inside our bodies we're making maybe 70-80 kilos our whole body weight in ATP is being turned over every day so that's happening continuously we're making and using that all the time even though the actual amount is quite small. Do we know how that came about? We know how that process is called oxidative phosphorylation which sounds a bit complicated but all it means is that because we have phosphates on ATP and because we use oxygen to release the energy, we have a process inside the mitochondria, which Nick alluded to, that we have this huge inner membrane. And that's a key part of what how mitochondria work. This was discovered by or a person called Peter Mitchell, which we may come back to a bit later on. And it's a process called chemiosmotic coupling. What happens is that we take the food we break that down and react it with oxygen. And then it goes to the mitochondria. And there we use this to actually pump protons, the things that we see in acid, like in vinegar. The protons are what give it its acidity. We pump those protons across this huge, huge membrane, the four football fields in area that Nick alluded to earlier. That each of us has. Each of us have. Uh, and that huge amount of charge and concentration across that membrane, this lightning bolt that we store there, is then stored as an intermediate energy form and it's only transient though and that gets used the protons come back through these astonishing machines called the atp synthase the structure which was determined by john walker in cambridge and what was absolutely amazing about the atp synthase is it's like a tiny turbine the protons come flying back through the atp synthase and it rotates maybe a couple of hundred times a second and as it rotates like a turbine It's using the energy that was temporarily stored in this proton gradient, these lightning bolts that Nick was alluding to, and then it's making the ATP. So we're continually replenishing the ATP as this kind of like a dynamo system inside. And the idea that inside our mitochondria, on this huge area of membrane, all the time we have these tiny little turbines whizzing around a few hundred times a second. It's astonishing, really. Thank you. Flo, come you. It contains DNA... Uh, sure it does. But it's different to DNA, found in the nucleus. How is it different? 
As Nick was saying earlier, um, we have two, two genomes inside of our cells. So most of our DNA is stored in the nucleus. It's about, in humans, it's about 16,000 genes that do all sorts of functions. But the mitochondria has a really, really small genome. It's like a little circle, and it only encodes, it only has 13 of these genes, protein coding genes, and they are responsible uh, for making products of this um, energy factory, the oxidative phosphorylation system. In what way does, there, does the responsibility demonstrate itself? So it's, the, it's a structural component. So if we think about the mitochondria, it's got the little energy factories making all of this ATP through the, through the turbines. The factory needs the building blocks. And so some of the building blocks are produced in the mitochondrial genome, and some of the other building blocks are produced in the nucleus. And so I, I like to use the analogy of uh, components of two different manufacturers have to come together to build this energy factory to produce all of this ATP that we use. So it's an incredible cooperation between these two systems that generates all life. So each of us is walking around with a massive industry inside us. That's correct, yes. Pumping yes. away the entire time. If pumping it stops away, pumping, exactly. we stop. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. I, I can't get my head around it. I just keep saying how extraordinary. But I'm going to pluck on saying it's extraordinary, and you'll tell people exactly why it's extraordinary. What does the DNA in mitochondria actually do? Can you just go back to basics? With the DNA, what does it do there? So DNA is our genetic makeup. Right? It is the building blocks of who we are. It's a blueprint. And so it has all the instructions on how these proteins should be made. So the DNA in the mitochondria has the instructions on how to make these components for the um, energy factory in the mitochondria. DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid, and it's all the genetic information that we have in our bodies to generate who we are as a person. The only timeline we've got at the moment is a mere two billion years ago, but do we know how, what you're talking about, how and when it was assembled? When uh, these complex cells arose in the world, that's when the interaction between the mitochondria and the nuclear genome started. So the endosymbiotic theory is, is a theory that states that this partnership started. So you have a pre-eukaryotic cell that was swimming along, and it found this bacteria, and it engulfed it. Right? And so the bacteria ended up being the mitochondria, and this pre-eukaryotic cell ended up being our nucleus. So this is the start of this wonderful friendship between the mitochondria and the nucleus. And through billions of years, genes started being lost in the mitochondria and being brought into the nucleus. So this bacteria that once was a functioning bacteria started losing control of itself and the control in terms of the genes got moved into the nucleus. So now the nucleus has a lot of control over what the mitochondria does. Nick, Nick Lane, um, it was first observed by uh, scientists in the 19th century. What did they observe and what did they make of it when they first... Well, it was, a, it was a guy called uh, Richard Altman. He... Actually, he died in rather tragic circumstances because nobody believed him and they, uh, they mercilessly uh, made fun of him. What didn't they um, believe? Well, they didn't believe because he had discovered what he said were the 
elementary organisms. So he'd used a dye. At the time, they were using dyes that would allow you to see the chromosomes in the nucleus. So you could see the cell division, this marvelous dance of the chromosomes as a cell divides and they all line up and then segregate into the daughter cells. And he was not interested in that. He was interested in the rest of the cell and he used a different dye that effectively dissolved all the cell apart from these elementary organisms that he could see that were kind of long sausage-shaped things, but actually they were it was partly threads and partly granules, and mitochondria literally means threads and granules. Um, and uh, he thought that the cell was a kind of corral, uh, and, and, and the mitochondria were like cattle in this thing, and the nucleus, he thought that was a food dump for them. Uh, and, and, and so these were, these were the elementary organisms, and, and they constructed all of life. And you can imagine it didn't go over particularly well. But why didn't uh, it? You've explained it very clearly. Why didn't it go over very well? Uh, the rest of the field had already figured out that most of the action was happening in the nucleus uh, with uh, whatever was whatever those chromosomes were. This was the dance of life to the rest of the field. And, and, and the mitochondria, nobody knew what they were. It wasn't until about the 1940s, late 1940s, that it was first shown that this is where energy is being generated in the form of ATP, as, as so Mike he, was saying. He came to a side end, didn't he, this poor chap? He killed himself, yes. Because nobody would believe him and made fun of him and yeah, exactly. hectored him and yes. said, you're wrong. It happens in science too, I'm afraid. Yeah. Oh, how awful. Mike Murphy, um, you mentioned Peter Mitchell earlier and said you'd come back to him. Well, here we are, back to him. What did he propose? What did he do? Describe briefly this idea called the chemiosmotic coupling hypothesis, which sounds a bit complicated, but it's how... This is the 20th century science. Yeah, this, is, this was all happening in the 1960s. Yeah. At the time in the 1960s, Peter Mitchell proposed this theory where we had these protons moving across a membrane, coming back in, driving this ATP turbine, and then making the ATP available. That sounds fine, that's a theory. But at the time, what people really thought was that they understood how ATP was being made by a different process called substrate-level phosphorylation. All that means is that it was a normal chemistry, like you put molecules into a test tube, you shake them up, they react, that made ATP. And that was how other processes, like the simple breakdown of sugar, worked. So that's what people thought was going on in mitochondria. And a lot of quite big personalities, should we say, <laughs> were invested in these ideas. Mitchell, Which big personalities? Uh, people like Ephraim Racker, E.C. Slater... Britain Chance. These are all very eminent scientists at the time, did wonderful work, but they all really wanted to uh, be the person winning the Nobel Prize to give the fundamental idea about how is energy transduced within our cells. Turns out that those big names were wrong, and Peter Mitchell turned out to be right, because that's how nature works. Peter Mitchell was very interesting in ways beyond just being right about how this works. He was did a PhD in Cambridge, and he moved to Edinburgh, set up a research unit there. But for various reasons, he decided he was going to move out of academia. Luckily, he was very wealthy and set up his own laboratory in a house called Glynn House in Bodmin in Cornwall and did the basic experiments with a colleague called Jennifer Moyle to actually uncover and show that this mechanism worked for how, how mitochondria actually made ATP. Then he was building on this, this idea, which was very different because it involved both vectorial ideas, as he called it, in other words, moving things in and out across membranes, as well as scalar things like normal reactions in a mess in a test tube. And that idea was hugely influential. What he was able to do was, though, he wasn't very good at explaining it in <laughs> clear ways. He just wrote it up as books, 
1966 and 68, he produced these books, which were called The Little Grey Books, a bit like The Little Red Books from Mao. And in some more cynical terms, they said these were the little grey books of Chairman Mitchell. Because these ideas were quite difficult to understand because biochemists weren't able to understand them. It took other people like David Nichols, for example, to really explain and sort of proselytize around. And also, of course, what happens is that younger people came up and were able to grow up with those ideas and were used to them and then passed them on. So uh, Jennifer Moyle uh, was mentioned there as well. Uh, and she was really a, a lifelong scientific uh, collaborator with Peter Mitchell. And I don't think that she's really got the credit that she deserved because she was the one who was doing the experiments. Mitchell himself apparently was cack-handed in the lab. He would tend to get bored and wander off and do something else. And, and it was really Jennifer Moyle who, who did a lot of the experiments that made the rest of the world, uh, made people like Ephraim Racker uh, uh, take it seriously and do experiments themselves. But uh, Mitchell and Moyle published not only uh, the, the Little Grey Books that was Mitchell alone, uh, but there were a number of papers in journals like Nature in the 1960s, which were Mitchell and Moyle together. And I was reading these uh, again recently, uh, and I was quite struck by how modern they are in their tone. And it's because Moyle was the experimentalist, and she was explaining the experimental approach. And I think they... I, I, I genuinely think that she didn't get the credit that... Ich würde dir ja ein Spicy Nugget abgeben, aber... Aber... Heiße Ware teilt man nicht. Ist klar. Hol auch du dir nur für dich die Spicy Chicken McNuggets. My Nuggets, my Rolls. Nur für kurze Zeit und solange der Vorrat reicht in teilnehmenden Restaurants bei McDonalds. Was sie deserved. Flo, um, endosymbiosis. Yes. What is endosymbiosis and how is it relevant to mitochondria? Well... And endosymbiosis, the word symbiosis means partnership. I got Things, that bit, but the... Yeah, the endo one. is inside, right? And so with the mitochondria, it's this partnership, the mitochondria being sort of a little almost parasite, let's say, inside of our cells. But they work together to produce um, all the energy that we need, right? So endo, it's inside, um, and then the, the symbiosis... It's the it's a partnership between both nucleus and mitochondria. How would you say that was relevant to to what we're talking about? Well, if it wasn't for this great partnership, we wouldn't be able to produce all of this ATP and energy that we need to survive. Right? It's really to make energy, you really need these two manufacturers, these two genomes, to work well with each other. Um, if there is any complications in terms of, let's say, you have a mutation in one genome that makes this communication or this sort of marriage not work properly, then you have catastrophic effects when it comes to producing the energy because things just don't physically work. Nick, you want to come in? Yes, the, the, uh, there's been a, a lot of change over the last uh, five or six years about who were the partners in this, uh, in this relationship, um, who was the host cell and, and who were the endosymbiont, the bacteria that got inside. And it's become increasingly clear that the host cell were really simple cells themselves. They were what are called archaea. They look a lot like bacteria. As archaea go, they're, they're relatively complex. But in effect, they didn't have anything. They didn't have a nucleus. They didn't have any of these membranes. They didn't have really any, anything that a, a, a eukaryotic cell, these complex cells that make up you and me. They had none of that. And then if you think about 
the makeup of complex cells. You look at a plant cell, and it ha if you look at it under a microscope, it's got exactly the same structures that our cells have. And an amoeba has exactly the same structures as well. And you wonder, why would a plant cell, which sits in the sun and photosynthesizes, have all the same equipment, if you like, as an animal cell or a fungal cell, which have got completely different lifestyles in completely different environments? And there's an argument, which is a beautiful one, it's certainly not proved, but actually they were not adapting to a way of life in an outside world they were adapting to the pesky endosymbiont that was living inside them the bacteria which itself wants to grow and potentially eat is somewhere between being a parasite and being a, a genuine symbiont wants to eat its host uh, and so a lot of this complexity in the world may have been driven by effectively the conflict between the host cell and the endosymbionts and then various forms of conflict resolution uh, which, uh, which which drove complexity, a kind of uh, an, a, a, a nuclear arms race, you may say, in, in, in early evolution. My Following up on what um, Flo and Nick have said, the history of endosymbiosis and how it was adapted is, and understood is also very fascinating as well, because early on, as we discussed before, the microscopists suggested something similar, that the mitochondria and also chloroplasts might be bacteria. This was then found to be ridiculous at the time for various reasons uh, which turned out not to be correct then later on when people discovered mitochondrial DNA and that pointed to the history of uh, mitochondrial chloroplasts as endosymbionts Lynn Margulis in particular in the late 1960s pushed that forward and she was famous for establishing the endosymbiosis and really the, the current uh, understanding of endosymbiotic origins of mitochondrial chloroplasts comes from her work in the 60s, which built on discoveries of mitochondrial DNA and chloroplast DNA. Yeah. Can we ask Nick, then, does mitochondria play any other roles in cells apart from energy production? Many, in fact, uh, and and we've become almost blinded to some of them by uh, by by our fascination with the energy side, but. If we go back uh, to some of the earlier bacteria that preceded mitochondria very early in the Earth, um, before there was any oxygen at all, they were behaving like mitochondria, you may say. And, and what they were doing is, is running the machinery backwards. Uh, and instead of, instead of burning food in oxygen to, to generate energy, they, they were actually taking the components that we breathe out, which is to say water and, and, and CO2. The water is, we, first of all, we're, what we're really doing with the water is we're, we're, we're pulling hydrogen out of food and burning it in oxygen to make the water. Now, what these early bacteria were doing was taking hydrogen bubbling out of the ground in places like hydrothermal vents and reacting with carbon dioxide to make these organic molecules the building blocks of life. And this is what's, this is in what's called the Krebs cycle, which is effectively feeding the hydrogen to, to, in, in the mitochondria Krebs to generate exactly. this charge. And yeah. this is what's driving everything. Yeah. It turns out now in, in diseases like cancer, that they, they start to behave almost like those early bacteria that sometimes the, the, the Krebs cycle starts going in reverse. And what they're doing in effect is instead of generating energy or as well as generating energy, they're making more building blocks. They're making more nucleic acids to make DNA. They're making more lipids to make the membranes. They're making more amino acids to make the proteins and so on. They're driving growth and, and, and cancer and so on. So they, they've become, over the last t 10 years or so, almost notorious uh, in, in, in cancer. As, as it's, it's much more ambiguous than simply they're providing energy. They're also providing the building blocks for growth, and it's, uh, it's become very important in medicine now. Mike, you want to come in? 
Building on those ideas that mitochondria have a metabolic, many metabolic roles, which Nick was describing there, they also have other roles by the nature of just being kind of slightly foreign ex-bacteria inside the cell. It means they now seem to coordinate a lot of processes, such as cell death. We understand that cell death sounds like a bad thing, but many times you want to kill the cell. The cell would rather die if it's virally infected or if it's become cancerous. You want the cell to die cleanly and go away. Mitochondria turn out to be central for that. They release some components, which activates a very clean way of killing off the cell. They also enable the cell to respond to things like inflammatory signals. So there could be an infection because some of the bacterial components that would trigger an infection are a bit like some of the things that we have in mitochondria. So they came to converge on similar signaling pathways. And also viral infections also enable the cell to respond to viral infections and respond to kill off viral infections and the cell might die. And a lot of those are coordinated on the surface of mitochondria as well. So as if we use the fact that mitochondria are slightly foreign and we encompass them and lock them away, but we can occasionally release them and they can trigger the cell to die or respond to infections. So we tell that um, mitochondria, it's only passed down the maternal line. That's correct. Could you discuss that? So unlike um, our nuclear genome, so we all know that we get half of our DNA from mum and half of our DNA from dad, and that's what makes all of us, right? every living in individual, every sexual living in individual, what we get from mum and mum alone is the mitochondria. So we get everything that surrounds... Do we know why? Um, I think it's, it's a process. It's the process of how sexual reproduction works. When the sperm meets the egg, the sperm head is just a tight, compact bundle of nuclear DNA, and the male sperm doesn't pass anything else on. Uh, actually, the mitochondria DNA and gets actually uh, destroyed inside of male sperm, which there's lots of theories as to why that that is. But yes, uh, we only get mitochondria from our mums. Yeah. And what consequences does that have? So that has, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, that has really interesting consequences. I study a lot this hypothesis called the mother's curse hypothesis. Um, and it's got a, a flashy name, but it's basically because the mitochondria is inherited from mothers to all of the offspring. The mitochondria only see females, right? And so if there is a mutation that is bad for females, selection will get rid of it, because that's what selection does. It gets rid of bad mutations. But if it's a mutation that is good for females, but bad for males, selection can't touch it because it's only inherited from mother to offspring. And so the mother's curse hypothesis predicts that male mitochondrial DNA, well, mitochondrial DNA in males, has a lot of mutations that are harmful for them just because of a byproduct. At what stage, at what stage did all this activity, which, which you often talking about in contesting this, that and the other, become something that was leading to life as we know it? As soon as bacteria get inside another cell, then effectively the number of them is, 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 is enormously decreased. You, you can no longer have millions and millions of them. In our own cells, we may have a few thousand. In, a, in an oocyte, in an egg cell, 
that's as many as we get. There's about there's about half a million in in an OA site, but what that means is you know it's not like having billions of people or billions of bacteria or something, and 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 the strength of selection depends on population size. So as soon as you live inside another cell, then you have a small population, and you begin to degenerate and lose genes, and, and that process of gene loss in the mitochondria is why they ended up losing almost all their genes and they've kept a few and those few that they've kept in mitochondrial DNA are really necessary for respiration to work. So anything that lost them dies in effect. Uh, so we've, we, we keep this handful of genes. All of this is actually a process of almost degeneration and yet somehow those are losing, losing their genome but they're still making ATP, they're still making energy. Uh, and, and because instead of having 4,000 genes like their bacterial ancestors had, now they've got, they've got 13 genes that code for proteins and maybe you know, some that code for other things as well like RNA. So they're, they're down to only 37, 38 genes left. And um, they can make as much ATP as they always could, but their overheads <laughs> making this ATP, instead of having to run 4,000 genes, they've just got a few. And so actually they, this process of degeneration gave the host cell enormous power. Uh, to, to almost do what it wanted, to swell up, to become larger. And, and, and so it's almost an unforeseen consequence of a, a, a trivial trapping in a population inside other cells that leads to a step change in what evolution is capable of. In what way, was there any way in which we could say, in the compass of the way we speak, that they knew about what, what was happening? Was this done by? Uh, we're not allowed to say that. This we're is what's, uh, this is teleology. And, yes. uh, evolutionary biologists not are not allowed to engage in teleology. Really? But uh, in effect, um, no, they have no foresight. They don't know what's going to happen. They simply. So are. the whole thing is accidental, haphazard. Yes. But it doesn't sound haphazard when you talk about it. There are principles that govern what can happen. And, and, you know, things like the strength of selection depends on the population size. These kind of things are principles that govern what may or may not happen. But they're loose and they give so much scope for other unexpected outcomes. I think the closest analogy in my mind to, to the way that natural selection works is probably the way that, say, the banking sector works or something. If there's a loophole in the law, they're going to find it somewhere and they're going to exploit it. And this is how natural selection works as well. I guess the issue, of course, is that we've only done the experiment once that we're aware of. So the idea of having finding life on other planets would be so exciting to see how it how it originated. Does it have similar? We'd predict there'd be similar systems involved, and we'd predict there would be a strong push through selection to come to something more more complicated. But let's see what we find when we go out to look for it. What do we know about disease? So mitochondrial diseases are very interesting because we know from what we've been saying, that mitochondria are very important for the basics of basic processes of life. So you need the mitochondria to break down food to make energy available. So you might expect then that if mitochondria weren't able to do that, we'd be in trouble. So as you might expect, we've talked about the mitochondrial DNA. If we get mutations from our mother in our mitochondrial DNA, our mitochondria can't work that well. Under those circumstances, energy-dependent cells like muscle cells, brain cells will show up as not working well and will get usually childhood diseases will arise. This is similar for many of the maybe thousand plus genes in the nucleus that also help assemble mitochondria. Those will also lead to metabolic defects. But in addition, of course, because mitochondria is so central to life in general for the methods, for the reasons that I alluded to a wee bit earlier, 
anything that goes wrong with mitochondria is going to contribute to all sorts of other diseases, what we would call, say, secondary mitochondrial disease. They don't have a genetic origin, but things like neurodegeneration, diabetes, aging-associated processes, all of these will also have a component of mitochondrial dysfunction. Is there any sense in which the systems you've been talking about are developing, are refining themselves as we speak? Well, mutation is a random process, right? So we think uh, we, you have your, our nucleus and our mitochondria, and they're making energy in our cells, and it's all going well. But we have mutations occurring all the time in our, in our bodies, in our cells, and mutation is a random process. So sometimes these things appear and within generations. As an evolutionary biologist, I'm not just thinking in minutes or hours or days. You think across several generations or thousands of generations. Things are about to pop up and mutations will arise either in the mitochondrial DNA or in the nuclear DNA that prevent this talking with each other. And so this is how it's a bit of an arms race. Mutations will arise and then the other genome has to compensate somehow for this uh, miscommunication. Mm -hmm. So we're not in a sta stable place all the time. The question you raised, Melvin, alludes to the idea that, well, it seems that we're still in the process of the, the post cell adapting to having the mitochondria there. Some of the questions that are raised was why do mitochondria still have mitochondrial DNA? Why couldn't they, they got rid of most of it to the nucleus? And that'd be, that's far more efficient because you've, in the mitochondria you've got all this machinery to keep the mitochondrial DNA going. Why? We don't really know. Some of the ideas which I find very un, not convincing at all are that the mitochondrial DNA is still in the process of being moved to the nucleus. I don't think many people believe that. Uh, I think the idea is that there's a reason for retaining mitochondrial DNA. I think in the simplest of terms, we need it to govern this uh, huge electrical charge that I mentioned earlier on, 30 million volts per meter. If you get that wrong, you sizzle yourself. Yeah. Uh, you need those genes right there to control this process uh, in, in, in real time. We're breathing all the time. We're burning this all the time. We, uh, we, we, we need those genes there if you lose them. And there are various conditions where you know, if you have a mutation in the mitochondrial DNA, it can play havoc. And it's not just in one organ. It, it tends to be worse in, say, the brain or in the muscle because those are the most energy-dependent organs, but it's actually the whole body. It's, you know, everything that we do depends not just on energy but on these building blocks. And we think about a condition as well like um, long COVID, for example, or, or, or any uh, viral infections. Viruses are they're, they're, they're notorious for can, they can cause cancer, but their interest is similar to... Um, is it, similar to a cancer cell's interest in that it wants to grow. It wants to make copies of itself. It wants to, you know, <laughs> take over the production system of cells um, and, and make copies of itself. Uh, and to do that, they want the mitochondria. They want to switch the gearing of the mitochondria effectively to make more viruses. And there's some interesting work suggesting that, you know, some of the problems with long COVID with, you know, dreadful lack of energy and inability to really... T t do anything very much um, are, are, are linked effectively to, to the viruses having manipulated mitochondrial function and it's the whole body which is affected by this. But are they, are they, are they instrumental in fighting disease as well? Um, yes, I mean having a good mitochondrial function and having a lot of energy in, in our reservoirs, it's always good to help 
combat any diseases or illnesses that we might have, of course. There's the, this thing has cropped up in the last year or two about a child with three parents. Yes. How does that, in, how does that involve uh, mitochondria? So for people that, uh, for mothers especially, that suffer from mitochondrial diseases, if they, if they know that they have a mutation in their mitochondria that can possibly get passed on to their child... Right. So what they do is that they get an embryo so that they get the nucleus from the mom and dad, where the mom has the mitochondrial disorder, and they get a donor embryo. And what they basically do is that they remove the nucleus from the donor embryo and they put the nucleus from the mother and father that want to have the child and they place it in there. And so the mitochondria comes from a donor parent. But the genetic, or most of the genetic information, comes from the mother and the father that suffer from this condition. Is this commonplace now? Is it, or is it? The UK passed the, the law to legalise this practice. I would think 2016 or 2017. And in the news, it was a couple of weeks ago. I think that the first child was born from this pr procedure. I think the, they've only been about five births worldwide from this procedure. What role does it play in aging, mitochondria? Uh, well, the the whole process of aging really, nobody can agree about it. That's the first thing to say. But in effect, the the engines wear down. I suppose you can say in the broadest sense, and and um, and the the engines are the mitochondria. So they we've known for a long time that they play a role in aging. But the question is, what kind of a role exactly? And I suppose the the simplest way to imagine it, and again, this is an evolutionary question because, um, you know, different animals have different lifespans, and it boils down to how much investment do you want to have to maintain a system uh, in relation to when do you want to have offspring? And so you know, small animals like rats will produce a lot, of, a lot of offspring in a short period of time, and an elephant obviously much slower and much fewer, and these are trade-offs in evolution. And if you think about, if we wanted to keep our own minds alive for hundreds of years, uh, we would need to invest quite a lot in making sure that the neurons are maintained in a working state. And if you simply replace them and you think that a, a single neuron may have millions of synaptic connections or tens of thousands of synaptic connections, then are you going to rewire all of those or are we going to lose our memories in doing that? The, the, the amount of investment in trying to kind of refashion a mind from within is very difficult to do. And, and, and so that trade-off in evolution effectively says, well, 70, 80, 100 years, that's enough. You produce your offspring and, and this is your lifespan. And so it's been very difficult to help people live, say, more than 120 or something. That's, that's often called the maximal human lifespan. Some people think we can do it. Some people think we should never do it. Uh, I think it'll be quite difficult to get much beyond there. And it's, it's because of this trade-off. <clears throat> Mike. What Nick was showing very nicely there is that we've got kind of two ways of looking at aging. First is the evolutionary one, which is the key one, that once you've reproduced, evolution doesn't care about you anymore. If you wear out, it doesn't matter. Normally you'd have died from other events by that stage during most of human evolution. But then that means even in that context now, where we have a very good environment for most of us, why do we still wear out? Why do we still age? It's something that mechanism of aging, what's going wrong, what's falling apart. Mitochondria are clearly involved in that. But the simple idea is that it was just mutations, accumulation, or oxidative damage due to free radicals. 
the more we look at all those simple theories, the more it's clear they're not sufficient to explain. So we still have the mystery about what is it that's going wrong if we live beyond what evolution, when evolution stops caring about us. What's the details of going wrong? It's still very tricky. If we can understand those a bit, we might be able to enhance lifespan or health span a bit better. And often it's the way that we handle energy, handle food, seems to be partially involved with those. And if we get address some of those, like caloric restriction can mimic some of these, we can live a little bit longer. But even then, we don't live another 100 years. We live another 10 years maybe, or we stay healthy a bit longer. So there's huge amounts about ageing we just don't understand. Ageing is a very big unanswered question, right? And we don't know why we age. And to me, I think the diet and the interaction of diet and the mitochondrial state is quite important. So there's been a lot of work done uh, showing, for example, that if you eat a lot of protein, that you tend to die really quickly. Although protein at the moment is a diet trend. It's extremely complicated and um, uh, we still don't know. There's two two views about protein. A is good for you, B is bad for you. Correct. (laughs) Almost with any diet, it's like that. There's one uh, nice point that Flo touched on earlier on about mother's curse that's... my my mitochondria are a dead end. It doesn't matter how good or how bad they are. They're going nowhere. Uh, and, and that means selection can't act on them. And so men can accumulate mutations in mitochondrial DNA over multiple generations that aren't good for them. This is the idea of mother's curse. And um, there's a, a beautiful idea that uh, this could be one of the reasons why there's a difference in life expectancy between men and women. Women will often live five, six, seven years longer than men. Why is that? It's probably not only mother's curse, but it's a, it's a nice, it's an interesting way of thinking about the question. Well, I think that's terrific. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike Murphy, Nick Lane, and Flo Camus, and to our studio engineer, Jackie Marjoram. Next week, Sophocles' tragedy, Oedipus Rex, Aristotle thought it the greatest play ever written. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. So what would you like to have said that we had in time in our, t- in our allotted... Uh, Scientifically, the, what intrigues me and I think is going to be very important for all aspects of mitochondria is how mitochondria are integrated into the cell, how they talk to each other within a cell and how they talk to the nucleus because I think there's a lot of feedback between the mitochondria and the nucleus. This could be by metabolites affecting what are called epigenetic marks within the nucleus. There are also ideas that mitochondria might be signaling from cell to cell, from mitochondria and related cells. So all these ideas that we have this pool of mitochondria inside our cells talking to each other and talking to mitochondria and other cells is a very intriguing you aspect. You it like that, that I get a bit confused because hmm. talking to, hmm. it seems, <laughs> these millions and millions of them chattering away to each other. Yeah. You're just using that as a metaphor. Yeah, they're not using sound waves, obviously, no. but they might be using... They could be, be using waves, though. They might be using waves, electrical waves. They could be using waves of uh, small metabolites that they're sending around, changes in pH, changes in ions like calcium. So there's lots of ways that they can talked well i'm using inverted commas here but Mm. not good on radio but uh (laughs) what they're talking to each other using all sorts of signals that they can communicate communicate with each other would have been a better phrase i mean one area that i'm becoming fascinated in and it's on the it's on the boundaries of respectable science i would say but uh, but 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 fascinating it turns out that anesthetics uh interfere with electron transfer to oxygen so they interfere with respiration Uh, and they 
I, I mentioned that the, the, the mitochondria generate these very powerful electrical fields, but we also now know that their structure means that we have a lot of oscillating current happening, in, in, and that should generate electromagnetic fields. Uh, and the role that electromagnetic fields play in this talking between different mitochondria or talking to the plasma membrane and so on, it's, I say it's on the bounds of respectable science right now, but I, I, there, there's been some beautiful work in the last few years that show that electrical charges really do influence development in, in things like flatworms and so on. Uh, and and there's, some, there's some work where you just manipulate the charge on the membranes that, that will mean that flatworms develop two heads, sort of strange things like that. So there's, there's, there's scope for understanding this electrical talk. So um, I'm quite interested in, in mitochondria from an evolutionary and an ecological perspective. So a, a lot of my work revolves around trying to understand how the mitochondria has helped organisms adapt to different environments. For instance, I work on little fruit flies in Australia, and we have shown that uh, the, f the fruit flies in the north, tropical Queensland, right, they have a different mitochondrial DNA and it's this DNA that has helped them adapt to this sort of hot rainforest conditions. But the ones in Melbourne, which is very similar climate to London, quite temperate, they have a different uh, mitochondrial DNA. And that DNA helps them adapt to more colder conditions. So uh, it's not just looking at mitochondria in terms of a medical uh, and biochemical lens, but also looking at how it um, impacts a lot of other... Uh, big evolutionary questions as well. Is there any way that people like you can, as it were, intervene or interfere with this to make it more effective for human purposes? Well, that's very interesting because a lot of the work I'm trying to look at is what we might call mitochondrial medicine, developing drugs that are targeted to go to mitochondria to manipulate them. Partly some of the work that goes on in my institute in Cambridge, people... Uh, colleagues like Michael Minchuk is trying to way, make ways of targeting proteins to mitochondria so they could repair damages, damaged mutations in mitochondrial DNA. Much of the work I've been involved in is small molecules, small drugs, trying to manipulate mitochondria and trying from that to develop treatments for things such as heart attack and stroke. Also the idea about how could we intervene in chronic diseases like neurodegeneration, target mitochondria and try and improve the outcome. So those would be another area that we think has huge, got huge scope and huge potential for the future, but we're just scratching the surface, I would say, of thinking about mitochondria as a way to treat disease. Nick? So, so, so mitochondrial diseases, which uh, are often degenerative conditions that can uh, attack young, very young babies, often in the first six months, usually within two years. Sometimes they take longer. It depends on um, the specific mutation. But the, with mother's curse in particular, the mutation is not harmful to, to the mother or to, to, to women in general. They're only harmful to men because mitochondrial function cannot be selected for in men because mitochondria do not pass down the male line. So it's an interesting idea. It's quite subtle because the genes in the nucleus can compensate for that and effectively can force the mitochondria to behave in a male way, if you like. Uh, but, it's, uh, but it does mean that men have about twice the risk of mitochondrial diseases on, on, on average. Do you anticipate great changes in the way your study hitherto has been going? I think there's a, there's, there's a big change happening now, um, which I suppose the way that medicine has been structured over hundreds of years has been focused on 
specific organs and degeneration of particular organs, and of course that's true. Uh, but there's also, you know, a, a lot of diseases like diabetes or, or Alzheimer's disease or cancer, they are linked with being older. They're age-related diseases, and there's something about the process of aging and the role of mitochondria in aging that mean that instead of it being as organ-specific, which goes back to Vesalius in, in, in Renaissance Italy, uh, it, it's, it's really about the system as a whole. So it's a different way of conceptualizing how medicine works and how we should approach medicine. Mm -hmm. And this is a change, I think, that's happening now, slowly, but it's, uh, it, it, it's, um, it, it's going to be a big revolution in how yeah. we perceive it. So we change the perspective. Right. At the moment, we're looking from the body up, down through the organs. But if we go back to the original cell, and that's a community of the endosymbiosis mitochondria and the rest of the cell, and look from that up, how that community operates in different organs, how they interact. That could be a very fruitful way of thinking about and what would human the, health. If, if you follow that through and got what you aim to get, what difference would it make? It could be that instead of thinking purely of neurodegeneration as neuronal cells dying or being damaged, it could be thinking in the whole context of the mitochondria throughout the body, affecting all of these processes and how they proceed with aging. But the reality is we don't know how it will progress. We're just diving in and seeing where it takes us at the moment. Well, one area that's um, quite exciting at the moment is effectively mitochondrial transplants, and we don't really know where this is going. But if you have a cell culture uh, and you, you effectively sprinkle mitochondria on that culture, then they will be taken up very quickly. Within an hour or two, they'll have all been kind of guzzled up. Um, and it seems that this happens in the body as well, that mitochondria will move around from one cell to another cell. And there's some potential dangers there because if you're effectively transplanting mitochondria with its own DNA and it's the wrong kind of DNA, then it could be that there, are, there could be a penalty for that. We don't really know, but at the moment it, it, it looks as if you can regenerate somewhat uh, cells by effectively giving them young, young mitochondria. Flo, do you want to come in here? Well, I'm, I'm quite interested in the future with the, what we talked about before with the mitochondrial replacement therapy, or the, the, the three parents. Um, it's a really new technique, and I think it has the potential to help a lot of people. Uh, we don't really know um, at, at the moment what some of the consequences are, but I think um, it's some revolutionary techniques that will help a great number of people. Well, thank you all very much. You were brilliant. I was... Uh Staggering to keep up, but you were, you were <laughs> extremely helpful. Thank you very much indeed. Would anyone like a cup of tea? Oh, that would be nice. That would be really nice. That was terrific. I was completely absorbed in it. Oh. Hi, I'm Rylan, and I'm here to talk about men. Because in recent years, we have all seen the man in Britain undergo radical change as the rule book has been well and truly ripped apart. So I'm going to talk to a range of prominent figures and celebs who have each got their own diverse and contrasting takes on what it means to be a man today. I want to prise open the fault lines of modern masculinity and get to grips with the changing landscape and try to get some answers so that we can pass them on to the next generation. This is Ryland, How to Be a Man, from BBC Radio 4. Listen on BBC Sounds. Hello and welcome back to the Business Blueprint from the UK's Department for Business and Trade. Let's hear a bit more now from Luke Seaman from Klarna. The talent pool in, in the UK is one of the 
absolute standout attributes of the UK market. Klarna's UK offices, for example, in, in London and Manchester, we've got something like over 30 different nationalities just in our UK team. So it just shows you the wealth and, and the kind of vast, rich tapestry of skills that you get from across the world in, in the UK. What impact, if any, has Brexit had on your business decisions? Broadly, we look at Brexit as a, as a big opportunity for the UK. There has been a fresh look at certain regulations that may not help innovation or tech. There is great benefit yet to come from Brexit, and I think we're very excited about what we can achieve through that. Thank you, Luke. To scale and strengthen your business, just as Klarna has done, investing in the UK could be the right next step for you. To inquire and find out more, search Invest in Great. Ich würde dir ja ein Spicy Nugget abgeben, aber... Aber? Heiße Ware teilt man nicht. Ist klar. Hol auch du dir nur für dich die Spicy Chicken McNuggets. My Nuggets, my rules. Nur für kurze Zeit und solange der Vorrat reicht in teilnehmenden Restaurants bei McDonalds. <lacht>